0: Well, good morning and welcome. If you have a Bible with you, you can take it and you can find the book of Zechariah. As we are uh, this sermon and one more sermon away, Lord willing, if we're able to uh, get through this one and meet again next week, we are just a couple sermons, uh, a couple books away from completing our series that we've uh, been going through during the summer uh, through the Minor Prophets. We've titled the series The Book of the Twelve, which is what the Hebrews would have uh, referred to as this collection of 12 books. We call it the Minor Prophets. The Hebrews would have referred to them as the Book of the Twelve. These are Minor Prophets, a reminder that it's not called Minor because they're less important or less significant, simply because it's Minor in that they are shorter in length compared to maybe the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so we find ourselves this morning in the book of Zechariah. It's 14 chapters, which means we're not going to be doing a whole lot of reading necessarily from the Bible, though we will, of course, uh, stay in the book of Zechariah and, and point out a few things. What I want to do is I want to just read the first six verses of Zechariah chapter 1. And he starts by calling them to repent, which is a word and a, and a, and a, and a message and a topic that we've seen repeatedly throughout these books. Here's what it says. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, or Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. Use 53 times that phrase in this book, the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts, purpose to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Zechariah is a book of, this takes place after the Babylonian captivity. As a matter of fact, Zechariah and Haggai, which we looked at last week, they, were, they, they, they prophesied during the same time. They were probably good friends. They were probably uh, ministry partners, so to speak. But Zechariah, which is my namesake, I'm, my name is Zachary, but it comes from Zechariah, and the, the, the name means, The Lord Remembers. And if you've tried reading through this book, like I know many of you have, uh, beforehand, in preparation for this message, you may have had some difficulty. Uh, you may have found it to be confusing or unclear. And maybe even at times you're wondering, well, what on earth is going on? Well, if I could speak for us, Zechariah's, Zechariah's are, they're, they're, they're kind of like, when, when, you, when you first meet them, they're, they're, a little, they're a little annoying and difficult, and they're kind of hard to understand and hard to keep up with because they talk way too fast, but once you hang around them for a while, you're going to realize they're not that bad, and that's the book of Zechariah. When you first get into it, you're wondering what's going on here, but if you hang around it for a while, you'll get used to them. And you realize that it's not too bad. There are 30 Zechariahs in the Old Testament, because the more the merrier. And God raised up Zechariah at a time, with Haggai, as we mentioned, to minister together. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you go back to Ezra, which is kind of the, the time frame of this, is you kind of find them both mentioned uh, in, in the book of Ezra. So this is after the Babylonian captivity. Now the first six chapters of the book of Zechariah are apocalyptic in nature. And if you read, there's eight visions that kind of kick off the book. And it's often, these visions, are, they're, they're heavy, and they have sometimes very confusing imagery. Uh, because apoc- apocalyptic literature, which is what we also get in the book of Revelation, we get some in Ezekiel as well, but it's, it's meant, even the word apocalyptic is the idea of unveiling. So God is doing he's unveiling some plans behind the scene. And that's why J. Campbell Morgan calls Zechariah the great unveiler, because he's used by God to show the people of Israel God's glorious light at the end of the dark tunnel of adversity and discouragement. And that's the way, that's how we find Israel. There are about 50,000 exiles that come back, and they're in in the homeland, they're in the promised land, and yet they were living in very discouraging times. But even in that discouragement, Zechariah saw the glory of God and the hope that existed for his people. And so many of the visions, and another confusing part about the book even is that many of the visions, many of what's going on, much of what's going on, it kind of looks a little bit to the past, it looks a little bit to the present, and then it looks all the way to the future at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But why such imagery? Why is God using such imagery, a vision of a horseman, a vision of four horns, a vision of a man with a measuring line, a vision of a golden lampstand, a vision of this flying scroll, a vision of this woman in a basket? What is, what is God trying to do here? God uses these images because he wants to implant a picture in your mind. And he wanted to implant a picture in his people's mind of, of who he is and what's ahead. Because that's, that's how God handles discouragement. That's how God handles discour- when people are discouraged or are discouraged in and, and life just filled with adversity and troubles. He unveils truth about Him. He didn't always give them a reason, He didn't always tell them what was going on. But what He did, He gave them the best thing they could use in times of discouragement. He showed them Himself and His plans and His ways. And it was to get their eyes off of themselves and to get their eyes off of their circumstances. And to look to their holy, comforting, rescuing God. And this is the theme of the book. We may not be able to see through our struggles and troubles, but we can look above and beyond them. And that's what gives us strength to face our trials now with faith in Christ. We may not be able to see through our struggles and troubles. Whatever it is you're facing right now, you may not be able to see it, but we can look above and beyond Above. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. And look beyond. That's Romans 8, 25. Where after talking about all the different different corruption that's in the world, he says, if whatever we hope for, we're going to wait for it with patience. And Zechariah is writing to bring hope to these exiles as they came back to the land because they were so discouraged. And they'd even, remember last week, they'd grown apathetic. And it's interesting that in the face of discouragement and apathy, not only does God show, him, uh, show them himself, but Zechariah contains more prophecies about Jesus than any other minor prophet. We're not even going to get through all of them today for sake of time says, so Charles Feinberg says, he says, throughout the prophecy there is presented to us on every page the spotless, blemishless, holy one of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah and King of Israel. Isn't it interesting that in a book that was directed towards people facing so much adversity and discouragement and apathy and sin that God would show them Christ. And so in the, dark, in the darkness of discouragement, God unveils his plan and gives us comfort. And we're going to look at the three ways this book is broken up. And number one, the first thing he does, in the darkness of discouragement, God gives, God gives the people eight visions about, and I put future salvation. You can add that word in there. Eight visions about future salvation here in chapter 1 through 6. Now, we're not going to take time to really explain all of these. We're going to sit on a couple of them for a little bit, but uh, we're going to kind of just, just kind of blaze through these in a lot of ways. But the first vision happens in chapter 1, verse 7. And it's a vision of a man with, with four horses behind him. And, uh, or he was riding a horse, and he's got a, he's got a bunch of horses behind him. And what the horses do is they go throughout all of the world. This is a vision, okay? So he's seen a vision in these horses, red, white, and sorrel horses. They go out through all the world, and they report back to God that every, all the nations were at peace. And what happens in verse 12, verse 11, he says, All the earth remains at rest. And then the angel of the Lord said, Oh, Lord, how how long are you going to have no mercy on Jerusalem? And how long are you going to let these people to spend 70 years? Why are you letting the nations be at ease after their captivity and their brutal treatment of the Jewish people? Why Why are you letting them be at ease? And it says in verse 13, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And so Zechariah is having a vision, and this angel is like his interpreter. That's kind of what it is. So Zechariah has this angel that he's talking to, and he says, what is, what is going on here? What does this mean? And so what it's talking about is, is it pictures the nations kicking back and relaxing after devastating Israel and putting them in exile. And God is going to give them hope that they will be able to withstand all that they've gone through and that God will expand them in an everlasting kingdom. That's verse 16. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord, and a measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Okay, so that's number one. That's vision number one. All the nations are at ease because they just got done devastating Israel and they're all just kind of kicking back and relaxing and God's saying they're not going to get away with it. My justice will come the second vision is a vision of four horns and four craftsmen and again you're saying what is up with this and it kind of helps us a little bit because Zechariah asks what are these a good question asked by the way and he says and the angel says these are the horns that have scattered Judah Israel and Jerusalem okay so these are nations the four horns represent four nations and if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 7, I believe that these horns are those same nations. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. All nations that persecuted the Jewish people. And God's th- plan here is that these four craftsmen come in and they cut off the horns. And a horns, the horns are a picture of authority and power. And God is going to cut them off and cast them down. So again, another vision of hope. That even though these four horns and these four nations are going to come and ravage the people, God was yet going to cut them off and cast them down. Now, I want to sit on the next three visions for a little bit because, in vision number three, what we get is a vision of a measuring line. So, a guy comes with a measuring line in his hand and he's told to go measure Jerusalem. And then it says, if you look down to verse 4, it says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of multitude of people and livestock. And then God says, I will be to her a wall of fire around her. And I will be the glory in her midst. I want you to look down to verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Of uh, this is chapter 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, after this, uh, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you for uh, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. I think there's some very great things going on here. So he's told to go measure Jerusalem, and the idea is Jerusalem is going to get so big you can't measure it. They're going to be like overflowing with people. And at this time, by the way, Jerusalem was not that impressive. Very small, very dainty, just kind of just this blah on a map. But God is saying it's going to get huge. Now here's the point. I think he's making here. I think the point is people are looking at this and saying, how could God possibly make something so great out of something that's so small? How could God do anything meaningful out of something so small and ruined? And it says there, it says the way he's going to do this is that God is going to be a fire, a wall of fire around her. It reminds me of the, 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 the image in 2 Kings, doesn't it? Where the servant's eyes are open, he sees these flaming angels all around him. God is going to set a protection around Jerusalem and his people that will be impenetrable. It pictures that God has a purifying, protecting, preserving interest in his people. There's no way the Jewish people could be taken out. And God does the same for us today. He puts us, he puts us, it says, uh, Jesus says, we're put in the the palm of the Father's hand. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you're put in the palm of his hand. And there's a permanence and a security to the soul of one who belongs to God. Why? Because God won't ever give you up. And it says there, God's people are the pupil of his eye, or the apple of his eye. The pupil of your eye is one of the most sensitive, delicate parts of your body. It was a part to be protected and given the utmost care. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, if you come to me, I'm not going to, anybody who comes to me, I'm not casting them away. So that's the measuring line. Then we get into vision four. Remember, you hang around a Zechariah long enough and you're going to learn to appreciate him. Vision number four, the cleansing of the high priest. And this is chapter three. I'm just going to read the couple, first couple verses. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. He's representing all of Israel. And he says, uh, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here's the image. He sees a vision of Joshua, the high priest. He's standing there before the Lord and Satan is right here. And Satan is accusing Joshua and the people to God. And God is just in there listening to all these accusations that Satan is making uh, against his people. And notice what verse 2 says. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire or a stick plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to him, who were standing around him, remove those filthy garments from him. Behold, he said, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Here's what's going on here. Joshua is representing the people of Israel and they are being opposed by Satan. And we can, this, this, is, this is exactly the same today. Satan is our great adversary. ...who opposes us and even accuses us to God. And God has taken responsibility on himself to hush the accusations of Satan. For the child of God, Satan's accusations are silenced. And it's it's not even because Satan wasn't right. I'm betting you Satan was probably saying some pretty true things about Israel... On how they were idolatrous, how their hearts were often wicked and far from him, how their their thoughts and and the words that they said and the things that they did show that they didn't truly love God and follow him. So, listen, he wasn't hushed because Satan necessarily, his accusations were necessarily baseless. Nor was Satan hushed because God's people were so righteous. God didn't say, hey, Satan, be quiet. Look how righteous he is. If, God were, if Satan were to go to God right now and accuse me before God, God wouldn't say, hey, you know, be quiet here. Do you, do you realize how righteous that Pastor Zach is? And all those, and my wife and everybody around me says, nah, I don't know if they say amen. He's not righteous. He's not there. There's only one reason God silences the accusations of Satan. And it's because he chose them, and he loves them, and he saves them. That's it. And we have victory over the lies of Satan, not because necessarily we are perfect people, because we're not, not because we're righteous. We have victory over the lies and accusations of Satan because of Christ's work for us. That's Colossians chapter 2. That's it. It's God through Christ who clothes us with clean garments. That's what leaves Satan's accusations null and void. Romans chapter eight, verses 31 through 34. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And the idea there is who could be against us and actually win and have victory? Not Satan. He who did not spare his own son, here's why. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So boom, there's Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn you, Christian? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. That's the basis on which we stand. We can stand on nothing else, period. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Notice how many times Paul just brings Jesus right back into it. Listen, if you're in here this morning and you are just you're just full of shame and discouragement over even your own sins, or maybe Satan, I don't know how he does it, but Satan, however it is that he does it, where he just whispers something in our ear, and we're tempted to believe that God does have a charge against us as his children, we can go to Romans 8. But it's also true to say that from this passage, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and you're not a Christian, If you stand before God on the day you die and your argument for why you should get into heaven is because of something you've done, you're not getting in. It's because of what Christ has done. And the reason why the accusations of our adversary and accuser won't stick is because God in Jesus has taken away our filthy rags and given us the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And so if your plan is to go to God on the day you die and say, well, God, I, God, here's what I've done. I prayed. I prayed a prayer. I went to church. I did this. I did that. You're not getting in. If you go to God and with no righteousness of your own and say, God, I don't deserve to be here, but Jesus said I could come. That'll, that's, that'll be what d- does it. Jesus saved me. Jesus gave me life. Just one more little anecdote as we leave this fourth vision and hurry quickly on. John Wesley uh, was the founder of the Methodist Church. When he was six years old, he found himself trapped on a second story of a burning building. As a matter of fact, his dad, who had realized that he had got left behind, was, was outside hearing his son cry for help, and he had all but given up hope and even prayed that God would just take him quickly. But kind of out of nowhere, John John, uh, this six-year-old John Wesley jumped from this high balcony and was caught by by a Samaritan waiting down low. And John Wesley would never forget his narrow escape, and he would refer to himself throughout his life as a brand plucked from the fire, which he gets from verse two of chapter three, where it says, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? But it wouldn't this phrase wouldn't it just remind him of the day he escaped that burning building. As a matter of fact, as he jumped, the, the reports are the, the roof collapsed right then. But he wouldn't just use this verse as a reminder that he escaped the fire of his house one night in February of 1709. But he would use this verse to remind himself of the day that God saved him from the very living flames of hell. And if you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus this morning, you are a burning stick plucked from the fire. A burning brand plucked from the fire. The last vision we look, we'll look at before we move on is the golden lampstand. One of my favorite visions, and all, and, and all the visions, this is, this is one of my favorite after, after one in chapter 3, is a vision of the golden lampstand. And so what Joshua sees here is he sees a lampstand. If you get the picture of a, you know, stand and then, you know, the different branches come off, uh, uh, this is what he's seeing. And so what he sees is he sees this lampstand, and on top of this lampstand is this giant bowl full of oil. And then on either side of the lampstand are two olive trees. Olive oil is what they would use. And so the two olive trees are pouring into the bowl, and the bowl is feeding all the little bowls on top of the candlesticks, you want to put it that way, on top of each lamp. And then each little lamp that had a little bowl of oil where they would put a wick, they had seven of them. So seven different little bowls, each had seven wicks. It was like a super menorah, just 49 shining bright lights. It was just this huge thing. What is is the point of this? What is the point of this? The candlestick, or the golden lampstand, With the big bull being fed by two different olive trees. Well, without taking the time to pull out everything here, the main point is in verse 6. If you look at chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, Then the Lord said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Okay, this is after he said, what does all this mean? He says, not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Here's what God was saying to him. God was saying that I am going to supply what you need to finish your task. Remember, we're talking about rebuilding the temple here. Because Zerubbabel was getting discouraged with what was happening and discouraged with the way things were going. And God was saying, I'm going to give you the strength and the supplies you need to do what I've called you to do. And I say, and you should say, Lord, can you do that with me? And we all got to come to the Lord and say, listen, I've I've got nothing I've got no strength left. I've got no might. I've got no power. Lord, could you do this for me? Because he's given us the spirit. I just want to say, if you're a mother or you're single or you're nearing retirement and you say to yourself, I'm running on empty, just remember, that's not entirely true. Now, you may be running low on your own strength and you may be running low on the, 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 the sustenance that you're trying to muster to do what God has called you to do but it's not entirely true. If, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, then you have God's grace. You have his strength to supply you with what he's called you to do. So here's what I want us to do. When life wears us down and we seem to be running out of strength, let's remember the vision of the golden lampstand, And let's remember that God, just like he did for Zerubbabel, he provided all the, all the resources he needed to finish the work. We will not spend time on visions 6, 7, and 8, but they all have the basic same idea, the flying scroll that, that comes in a curse, the, the woman in a basket, which represents this, uh, this woman who represents sin being carried off to a specific place. You know, the, all, all, all the idea is that God's judgment is going to come out on his enemies and there's going to be salvation for his people. So the first way, and you might say this is a very bizarre way, but the first way God is trying to give Hope to discourage people is by giving them eight visions about future salvation and showing them who God is and what he's doing and what he's going to do through them. Then the second part of this book is chapters 7 and 8, where God gives them two messages about sanctification. Now, your notes in the bulletin say four. That's my bad. It should say two. This is the next thing he does to give them encouragement. And this will be for those... You know, if, if the eight visions are for those of you who feel just kind of lost, you, just, you, don't, you, can't, you don't feel like you can really see through all the troubles and trials you're going through right now, if those first eight visions are for you, then v- chapters 7 and 8 and these two messages about sanctification are for you who maybe say, I just feel stuck in sin, or I feel stuck in apathy, or I feel stuck in just the, 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 the selfish desires of my flesh. This will be for you. Because the question is, if you look at uh, chapter 7, verse 3, a guy named, uh, by the name of Sherezer and Melech come and they ask a question. And verse 3 is the question. They came to the house of the Lord, of the hosts, and the prophets, and they said this, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So what they're asking is, should I keep fasting during the fifth month? Now what they did is they, the fifth month was when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. That's 2 Kings 25.8. So they're asking, should I keep fasting and crying over the fact that the temple was destroyed 70 years ago on the fifth month? That's what they're asking. And really the question is, when do we stop crying about the past and rejoice in the future? You know, when do we move on from the old and inaugurate the new? That's kind of the question being asked. How do we move on? And so he gives two messages. One's from chapter 7, one's from chapter 8. And the first message is this. God starts with uh, just saying, religious activity does not equal sanctification. That's the first message. Religious activity does not equal sanctification. Because they bring up this question about fasting. And God confronts the, the, the question... In verse 5 where he says, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month, and even in the seventh month, which is when a guy by the name of Gedaliah uh, was slain, so they got a fast for that too, so in the fifth and seventh month, they've got all these fasts for all this, these things that happened in the past, and God says, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? With the answer being no. And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So here's what God's saying. What was really the point of the fasts? Religious activity does not equal sanctification. Just because they were fasting doesn't mean they were godly people. They were self-centered. And their fasts were self-centered acts that were towards events that came as a result of their sin. And so they fasted because they felt bad about their sin. And maybe that's why you're at church this morning. You just feel really bad about your sin. You think that somehow being at church is just the act of being here. Is some way to get God to like you a little bit more. But God is telling them, it's it's time to move on. Time to move on from self-centered fast and start obeying and loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But instead, the older generation, because he's talking about the, the, the future generation, he, said, he, he reminds them in verse 11 through the end of the chapter, it says, they refused to pay attention and, turned to, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and they closed their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law of the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit. You know what they did? They heard all this stuff about God's rebuke and they did nothing about it turned a cold shoulder they hardened their hearts they shut their ears in response to their hard hearts god scattered them like a whirlwind scatters debris and so now what god is going to ask is the zerubbabel's generation okay it's your turn to answer the question will you keep on with this self-centered fast and your empty religion or will you truly love me But religious duty is more convenient for our sinful hearts, isn't it? Religious duty, showing up to church, praying, reading your Bible, just doing that for the sake of doing it and not really having a relationship with God, that's easier for us. Because when we're doing just purely religious things with no relationship to God, we set the tone, don't we? We set the standards. We determine what God would and would not approve of. We determine what would and wouldn't bring us in a relationship to God. And they were getting stuck in their defiant self-centeredness. And that may be some of you. You're stuck in your defiant self-centeredness. And you want no relationship with God. You want no relationship with Christ. You feel bad about your sin. And you even really don't like and and mourn the consequences of your sin. But a relationship with God is nowhere on your radar. So you do religious things. Hoping that that will set the tone. That will get the standard. That will determine what God would and wouldn't accept. So the first message he gives about their sanctification. Because they were kind of stuck in this. Was that religious activity does not equal sanctification? But there's another message. There's another message. It's in chapter 8. A work of God is required for growth in God. That's the second message. A work of God is required for growth in God. Okay, because chapter 8 shows us their change. And we could go just right away to verse 11 of chapter 8 to show that they did change. Because God says, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days declares the Lord. Okay, so they changed. But how did they change? It all starts in verse 2 of chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath even. It says there's coming a day where, where Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. Verse 4 says, here's what the Lord of hosts says, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. Notice here verse 5, In the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Love the vision God gives here. God is saying, like, here's who I am. I'm jealous for you. And here's what I'm going to do. And that's what led to change. God was going to come and dwell with them. God showed them that he was jealous and that he loved them. That's what led to change. So many of you are beating yourselves up. And I know as a a former legalist, if you're a legalist, this is what you do. You beat yourself up over every little thing. And you're hoping just to eventually beat yourself into submission. Or if you do enough religious things, you're eventually going to get a right relationship with God. And so you just keep pounding away, pounding away, pounding away, trying anything to get God's favor. And you get frustrated and upset and angry because it's just not working. God always feels so distant. And that's because that doesn't work. That's that's not how you change. You change by knowing who God is and knowing what he's done for you. God was going to change their entire eternity. He was going to rescue them from all sin, death, and disease. And God showed them a world where old men and old women are out just hanging around shooting the breeze without any fear of judgment. He shows them a world where kids are out playing in the streets. Imagine that going on in Afghanistan right now. Imagine a world where kids go out and play on the streets and they, have, they don't have to worry about anybody coming to kidnap them or take them or kill them. Imagine a world where children are going to play in the streets, free from all this. And notice in verse 6, their, their, their response was, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it's too marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people, should it also be marvelous in my sight? What, it's, what he's saying here, it seems too good to be true. But verse 9, it says, here's what God says, Let your hands be strong. Let this fuel your sanctification. Let this fuel your battle against sin. showed him himself before we move on to the last part Zechariah 7 and 8 remind me of Romans chapter 7 and 8 if you remember Romans chapter 7 you remember Romans chapter 7 Paul is like stuck in this endless battle of sin with his flesh and Paul says I I hate the man that I am like I really want to do good things but then inside I feel this total different person almost this whole different desire fighting, waging war against my flesh so that I do the things I hate and I don't do the things I want to do. And he's just stuck in the discouragement of battling sin. And then we get to Romans 8 and he wins the battle over discouragement by reminding himself of what Jesus did for him. Here's Romans chapter 7 verse 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Where does he go? To Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, that's Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. Zechariah chapter 7 is about the sting of sin, the rebuke of God, and the plight of just being stuck in it. And then in Zechariah chapter 8 is the hope that God has done for his people, and that's the rescue plan. And it was the same rescue plan. You go through Romans chapter 8. It's all about what God has done through his spirit, through Christ. And God's plan hasn't changed. If you're stuck in sin and you're caught in the endless, discouraging, soul-burdening wrestling match with the indwelling sin and all seems hopeless, you come to Christ. And you come to know what God has done for you. That's your way out. That's how you fight this. Church attendance won't win the battle. Christian things won't win the battle. So when you come to have seen all that God has done for you in Christ, that's when you win the battle. So much discouragement comes from just getting stuck in chapter 7. You're a chapter 7 Christian. There's, a, there's an Old Testament chapter 7. There's a New Testament chapter 7. You're just a chapter 7 Christian. God is inviting you to dive into the riches of chapter 8. Trying to work your way out of sin instead of worshiping your way out of sin. We've, you will never be able to work your way out of sin. But you can worship your way. You can't work your way out of sin, but you can worship your way out of sin. And that's Romans 8. Thanks be to God. Praise. Worship. Worshiping the Lord. We've got to wrap this up very quickly. This, this fire hydrant keeps coming at you, and it's not going to slow down anytime soon. So take a breath, stand up and exercise, stretch if you need to. But we're going right into chapters 9 through 14, which are the, the most Jesus, some of the most Jesus-centered prophecies and verses of the entire book. We're not going to be able to cover all of them there are a couple oracles, oracle means burden, which is why we're talking about two burdens about the Savior. Zechariah was burdened to share this, he was lifting it up for all people to see, so it's looking to Jesus, his first coming, his second coming, here's the only issue, Zechariah did not know this was happening, or this was going to happen, he didn't know that between the first coming of the Messiah, that there was going to be a pause, and that there's going to be this whole church age thing, and then Jesus would actually really return to reign later, And so, we'll touch on that a little bit. As a matter of fact, we can go to chapter 9. We're only going to look at two verses here, but it's chapter 9 and 10. Uh, Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9, where he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Tell me if these verses sound familiar to you. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I hope that sounds familiar to you. This is where Jesus fulfills this prophecy. Remember when he, when he, this what we call the triumphal entry, the week before Easter. Here's what Jesus says to the people during that time. It's from Luke 19 verse 42 through 44, where he says, "Would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace." He's like, "Hey, if you had only known what Zechariah was talking about." He says, the days are going to come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They're going to tear you to the ground, you and your children with you. They're not going to leave one stone upon another. Why? Because you didn't know the time. You didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't realize that Jesus riding in on a donkey should have been a pretty big indicator, like, hey, I've read this before. I've seen this somewhere. They didn't get the point. Their Messiah was there. Jesus was there. Their Savior was there. But in God's sovereignty, they rejected him. Notice verse 10. Verse 10 has not been fulfilled yet. Verse 9 has. Verse 10 is not. Getting rid of the war horse and and, uh, and speaking peace to all the nations and this, this guy riding on a donkey, ruling from sea to sea, not happened yet. We're still waiting. Verse 10 Verse 9 happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to bear the judgment of sin. Verse 10 happens when he returns to bring judgment on sin. Chapter 10, man, to be able to go through all this we're not going can take time, but it's, it's, it's the blessing of the future kingdom. One of the blessings in verse 6 is that he was going to treat them as if they never rejected him. Man, wouldn't it be great to have a God who would one day treat you as if you never rejected him? What well, is that is our God. Chapter 11 is the rejection of the Messiah. Chapter 11 is about a shepherd, Zechariah, who represents Christ. He takes up the role of a shepherd. And and they basically detest the shepherd, and they tell Zechariah, we don't want you anymore. So Zechariah, in verse 8, he says, well, well, give me, pay me my wages for what I've done. And in verse 20, I think it's in verse verse 8, or verse 12, he says, it seems good to you. Give me my wages. And notice here, here's what they pay him. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said, "Throw it to the potter." This is another fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Now, thirty pieces of silver—you need if from from numbers uh, uh, from the from the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. I think it's Numbers twenty-one. Thirty pieces of silver was the price you paid for a slave who was gored by an ox. So here's what they're saying to Jesus, or here's what they're saying to their shepherd. You're absolutely worthless to us. And that was how they assessed the shepherd's worth. And Judas fulfills this prophecy. Judas assessed the prophecy of his shepherd with some petty cash. And what was the money used for? Remember when when Judas went and threw it back in? The temple leaders? remember what they used used it for to buy? What did they buy? A potter's field. Judas estimated the worth of Jesus in petty cash. Maybe a large sum of money, but really petty. And you may be doing the same thing. Jesus may be worth a Sunday here and there. He may be worth a prayer here and there. He may be worth something, you know, to kind of make the grandparents happy or to make the parents happy or show your face. But he's really not worth that much to you. Which brings us to the final section of this book as we wrap it up rather quickly. Chapters 12 and 13 talk about how this, this shepherd was rejected, and he was even killed. Chapter 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 10, talks about them looking on him whom they have pierced, another prophecy about Jesus. Chapter 13, verse 7, talks about striking the shepherd and the sheep being scattered, another prophecy about the death of Jesus. And then we get into chapter 14, last chapter where the Lord talks about, in verses 1 to 3, this last great battle that's going to happen. There's, there's a battle coming on this earth, and it's the last one, and it's the battle to end all battles. He says, I'm going to gather the nations, verse 2 of chapter 14, against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the house plunder, plundered, the women raped, half of the city shall go into exile, the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations." And when he, as when he fights on a day of battle, there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus is going to go battle all the nations that have rejected him. And we learn in verse 4, I just want to draw your attention to this. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. This real place, in real Israel, outside of real Jerusalem. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And notice what happens. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east, uh, from east to west by a very wide valley so that on one half the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. How do I bring your attention to that? Well, a couple of reasons why. Remember, Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back. And when he steps his foot on the Mount of Olives, there's going to be a split. Half of the Mount of Olives is going to go north and the other half is going to go south. Now what's crazy is recently geologists have actually discovered that there is a fault line directly beneath the Mount of Olives, directly down the center that goes east and west. All that to say is that fault line is going to go. And it's going to be be when Jesus sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, that fault line is already ready to go. Things are already in place for the return of Jesus. And Jesus will be king over all the world. This is where things are heading. Verse 16, it says, then everyone who survives all the nations shall come against uh, Jerusalem, shall go up year after year to worship the king. This is, this is, this is one of my favorite verses because I really want to go to Israel To do a Holy Land tour, I'm not sure if I'll make it in this lifetime, but I will eventually get there. One day I will be in Jerusalem to worship the king, even though it's going to look way different, but one day we'll be there. So what's discouraging you today? A relationship? Loneliness? Lack of surety about your eternal destiny? Past sin and regret? A loss of vision and direction for the future? Everything seems to be against you. Responsibilities are more than you can bear. I want you to remember the visions. Yes, remember the visions and what they say about God. That as a child of God, you are the pupil, the apple of his eye, and he is a wall of fire around you. That as a child of God, you have Jesus, God's son, standing as your advocate. That as a child of God, you have an endless supply of grace from God to strengthen you for everything he's called you to do. And I want you to remember the messages about sanctification and what it says about conquering sin. Conquering sin always starts with, with d- diving in and grasping with all your heart all that God has done for you in Christ. And I want you to remember these oracles, that the shepherd king will return. And if, he's, if you're a Christian, he'll return for your good. If you're not a Christian, he's coming to battle you. But it's never too late to switch sides while you have life and breath in you. You place your faith in Jesus, the one who died for your sins and rose again. God promises to give you life and make you his child. That's the book of Zechariah, discouragement in dark times. I trust that God's unveiling of his plan and who he is will give you comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we've, we've got a, a mountain of things we went through today. But Lord, we thank you for the book of Zechariah. We thank you for your graciousness to us. Lord, in the dark days of discouragement, whether we're discouraged just because life seems to be piling on, whether we're discouraged, and rightfully so, because we're just battling sin, we can't seem to have victory. Whether we're discouraged just because we can't seem to see through to the end. Use your visions to give us hope. Use your, your, your law and your, your ways on sanctification to, to help us be doing the right things to love you and to see you more clearly. And Lord, give us great hope in the return of that shepherd king, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.